Pacifica Radio, and welcome to our December show. I wanted to begin by speaking a little bit about our assignment as parents and also as teachers, uh, because it's our task to prepare our children for the future. And when we do that, we have no idea what the future is going to be like for them and how much the world is going to change. I remember when I was a boy sitting in school, and it was a good while ago, but still, we would get the Weekly Reader, and I remember this edition of the Weekly Reader. There was a picture of a, of a man in a white suit with a white hood on, and the title was Miracle Fiber of the Future, and it was an article on asbestos. And we were so high on asbestos, 40, 50 years ago that we put it in our floor tiles, our ceiling tiles. We put it in our shingles of our buildings. We wrapped our heating pipes with this friable carcinogen. And within 40 years, we spend millions of dollars taking it out of every building. And it's just a picture to me of how when we try to understand what the future is going to be like, it's just so clear that it's hard to predict. And if it's information that we're trying to impart to our children, the information that we're giving them about the world uh, will be outdated. And our guest tonight is one, is Daniel Pink, uh, author of A Whole New Mind. Um, and what Daniel understands is that we're moving from an information age to a conceptual age, that our world is changing rapidly. And I'm just so pleased to have Dan Pink on our show. Uh, I guess when I heard about Dan's book, it was, um, through an educator who I just respected deeply. And the sense I had from what she said was that this book had a radical new understanding of the way in which we should be educating our children. And when I read A Whole New Mind, I wasn't disappointed in the least. Um, I also found out that when Oprah Winfrey read A Whole New Mind, she, brought, she purchased copies for every graduate at Stanford when she was giving the address because I think she believed that this book was so important um, to these young people who were heading out on, on their career journey. So uh, I'm just pleased to welcome Daniel Pink and uh, glad that he's here on the show. Jack, thanks for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Now, now, Daniel, the economy's on everybody's mind these days. And one of the things that I noticed from your writing is that you detected a shift in our economic situation, uh, what you call a seismic shift. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Um, just to connect it to what you were talking about earlier, Jack, um, you think about the advice that parents give their kids about how to succeed. And when I was a, when I was a kid, and I grew up in a middle-class family, middle of America, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, uh, parents like mine gave their, parents, gave their kids a certain plate of advice about how to get ahead. And it went like this, get good grades, go to university if you could, and then pursue a profession that's going to give you some economic security. Now, I grew up in Ohio. At the time, the Rust Belt was rusting. And so it was clear that the advice at that moment was changing. You could no longer walk from high school into a factory and have a secure job. That era was ending. And what really was required is you had to learn some kind of white-collar skills, become an accountant, maybe become a lawyer, become an engineer, because if you made it into one of those professions, you were golden. Uh, you had a very solid foothold in the middle class in this country. And if you weren't in the middle class, that was the pathway into it. It wasn't easy, but there was at least a fairly well-lit pathway into the middle class. And even more important, though, is that if you think about the whole economy, the whole economy was built on those kinds of abilities. The lawyer, 
um, engineer accountant kind of abilities. Those were the abilities that made the world go round. Those were the abilities that our school systems were basically designed to foster in people. Well, my argument um, in a whole new mind is that those abilities still matter, but they matter relatively less. And a different set of abilities matters much more. And it's a set of abilities that we just haven't taken seriously enough in this country. And it's more of the right brain abilities, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. Those are now the game changers. Those are now the abilities that mark the fault line between who moves forward and who falls behind. Um, all kinds of, and, and again, the, the great irony here is that I myself am a very, very, very left brain guy. But um, if you do what I've done over the last couple of years and taken a hard look at the facts, at the evidence, at the data of what's really going on, uh, I don't even think it's close that the scales are tilting and that there are three big forces that are making these left brain abilities necessary but not enough and right brain abilities the ones that matter most. Uh, and those three forces? What well, we're... they are the three A's. First, we have Asia. Asia automation and abundance. Asia automation and abundance. You'll see I believe in repetition. <laughs> Let me say that again. I believe in repetition. Um, Asia. Uh, right now, uh, various certain kinds of white-collar work can get, get, get done cheaper overseas. So you think about certain kinds of basic computer programming. Um, jobs that pay $65,000 here in the Washington metro area can be done in India for about eighteen or $19,000 a year by people who have degrees in computer, college degrees in computer science and engineering. And $18,000 a year in India is upper middle class wages. Um, so here's the key about, about offshoring and outsourcing. Uh, if work is routine, and that's the one word, especially for the parents out there who are listening to this, if you remember nothing else from Jack's and my conversation, I'd like you to remember that one word, routine, because that is the scariest word in the economy today. Here's what I mean by routine. Ru work is routine if you can write down the steps and it has a right answer. If, it, if you can reduce the job, the task, to a series of steps that has a right answer, reduce it to a recipe, to a formula, do one, two, three, four, five, six, and produce a right answer. That kind of work is disappearing from this country, period. It could get done just as well overseas. A place like India, I mean, India has a billion people. If you have just 15% of India make it to upper middle class status, you've got more Indians than you have workers in our entire economy. Uh, oh, plus, we're connected by computer for free, and India will be the largest English-speaking country in the world by 2010. Okay. I mean, that, so in the same way that routine mass production work has essentially left this country, that is mass production work that was about following a set of rules with your body, white-collar work that's about following a set of rules with the left side of your brain mm -hmm. is a goner. And here's the thing. Certain kinds of work our moms and dads told us to do is routine. Certain kinds of accounting is routine. Certain kinds of financial analysis is routine. Certain kinds of law is routine. So if you, go, if you think about it in terms of left brain and right brain, the left brain is really the routine side. If that gets commoditized, you have to compete with the right side of our brain. Let's go to automation because it's a very similar story. Last century, machines replaced our back, our muscle. If you and, I, you and I could carry a bunch of heavy things, but we would do a lot better by enlisting a forklift. Okay? Machines essentially replaced our back, our muscle. It can do certain things better than we can. So that's great. Let's have machines do stuff that humans can't do as well. Well, now what's happening is that software can do certain kinds of intellectual tasks just as well, a lot faster, and a lot cheaper. But again, for now at least, it's only those routine tasks. So let's think about um, uh, tax preparation. Last year, 
there were about a million U.S. tax returns done in India, because an Indian chartered accountant makes about $550 a month. No way to compete with that. And people got all wigged out by that. Oh, it's terrible for accounting profession. Oh, it's the hollowing out of white-collar America, blah, 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 blah. No one says a word about TurboTax. A $29 download that does the same kind of work that a white-collar accountant used to do, 21 million Americans did their taxes on TurboTax. So routine work either gets offshored or, outs, uh, uh, or, uh, or automated. Now, finally, is this idea of abundance, which is a weird one. What I mean by abundance is that the standard of living in this country is so high in the, it, among middle-class people, which is going to sound a little bit disconsonant in this economic downturn, but the material well-being of, of the middle-class American family today is breathtaking by historic standards and international standards. And what that means, give you an idea, 1990, there was maybe 1% of homes had a mobile phone. Now you have 89% of, of homes have a mobile phone, right? Um, and think about something like, uh, just think about it generationally, when my father was born. 19, early 1930s, 10% of American homes had a refrigerator. Now you're at 98%. 98% of homes have a color TV. 70-something percent have internet access. 70-something percent have a computer. It's just unbelievable. So what that means as a business proposition is that you have to be able to give the world something it didn't know it was missing. And that means that businesses out there, and this is a business book, businesses out there are, are, are going crazy looking for right brain people. Yeah. People who can iterate something new. People who can give the world something it didn't know it was missing. They're not getting that from MBAs who crunch numbers. They're not getting that from, um, you know, uh, rule-following engineering grads. They're getting it from MFAs, mm -hmm. Masters of Fine Arts. They're getting it from people with an arts background. They're getting it from people who can use the right side of your brain. So you add this all up, abundance, Asia, and automation. And what it means is that today, to make it in a very hard-headed way, you have to be able to do work that's hard to outsource, hard to automate, and that iterates something new. And what that means is that all these things that, are, that uh, our moms and dads told us to do, become an accountant, become a lawyer, those kinds of abilities, do well on the SATs. The SAT, to my mind, is the epitome of left brain yeah, thinking. Right. And those left and, 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 and SAT skills, they still matter. You need them as a foundation, but they're flatly not enough. And you need these right brain abilities. And going back to your earlier point, Jack, what it means in terms of education is that Right now, we're preparing kids for my past, yeah. and what we need to do is prepare them for their future. That's right. You know, um, I think in your book you say that $15 billion in jobs will be sent overseas in the next 10 years. And um, so that the future for young people in America, if they want to be part of the economic picture uh, of America in the in the upcoming years is to start to use the the right side of the brain and to research this you um, had to go and put yourself in a magnetic resonating uh, machine didn't you and 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 get a picture of your brain and could you say a little bit well, about what you found out sure sure what happened you know the the, the brain the, the the structure of our brain is a very powerful metaphor I think for the contours of our time and so what I'm arguing is that the left brain abilities still matter but the right brain abilities matter more but as a prelude to that I wanted to make sure I got the science right mm -hmm. um, and so I went to the National Institutes of Health uh, outside of Washington where we are right now to get my own brain scan and to see my own brain in action, which ended up being a profoundly disappointing experience, but that's another <laughs> story. And um, you know what we know about our brains is that they're very elegant and very efficient, 
but they're also uh, they're very they're very complicated. At some level, we barely know anything about them. Um, but we also know at this broad topographical level, they're very efficient. They divide up tasks. Left hemisphere specializes in one set of tasks, tasks that are logical, linear, analytical, sequential, step by step by step by step. Right hemisphere specializes in tasks that are about processing things all at once. Uh, tasks that are about understanding context rather than text, and tasks that are about synthesis rather than analysis. And I think that division of labor offers a very powerful metaphor, um, that, um, that the sorts of abilities that are characteristic of the right hemisphere are now the abilities in business that matter most. And you talk to you know, people who are hiring out there, and that's what they're looking for. I mean, they expect a certain base level of left brain abilities, mm -hmm. but um, uh, the you know in medical schools they're moving to the right side of the brain. In engineering schools they're slowly moving to the right side of the brain. In hiring practices, as I mentioned before, companies are going to art and design colleges. They're looking for people who are multidisciplinary, multifaceted, multilingual people who can people who can think um, broadly. We're speaking with Dan Pink here on on parenting and. There are phone lines here. It's 202-588-0893. Please give us a call if you have a question and speak to our guest. And um, Dan, I wanted to ask you, with the these right brain abilities that are going to be needed for the future, in your book, you outline six abilities. Right. Uh, yeah, right. So, so to, to write this book, A Whole New Mind, I you know, interviewed all kinds of business people, did all other kinds of various research to figure out, okay, if this argument is right, what, what do we need to know how to do? And mm -hmm. I think that there are six key abilities that matter most. And the good thing about them, I think, is that they're fundamentally human abilities that all of us can learn how to get better at. So actually, as you know, Jack, in this book, um, not only did I have a chapter on each of these six abilities, but I also try to offer people a whole set of tools and tips and exercises to get better at these, mm -hmm. many of which I've done myself. So one, I think, signature ability would be design. Um, you, one, one great ability would be design. You have to um, uh, design, I think, has become a fundamental business literacy today. Uh, another one would be story. In a world of ubiquitous facts, each individual fact doesn't matter much. What matters more is putting facts in context, delivering them with emotional impact. That's what a story does. Um, and so we can talk more about um, we can talk more about these um, um, these these individual abilities. But yeah, I would like to do yeah. that. We have a caller now, and we're going to turn to the phones, and uh, I believe that Felicia's on the line. Hello? Yes, hello. Hi, Felicia. Hi. Um, yes, my question is uh, more so centered around a, a health question. Mm -hmm. um, I am eight weeks pregnant. I am a diabetic uh, with right now currently uncontrollable blood sugars, and I just currently um, got put on dialysis, and so of course I'm a high-risk pregnancy. Um, what what are the chances of having a normal, healthy baby? Oh gosh, Felicia, you know your question is such a serious one, and one that neither my guest Dan Pink nor I would really be qualified to to answer. But what I think. I would say to you is have you, what does your doctor say and have you been in touch with your with your doctor? Well yes, right now you know they're considering me um, high risk and um, but right now currently um, the baby is healthy and 
the heartbeat is fine and everything is fine. They're they're more so um, trying to uh, get my diabetes, yeah. you know, under control because of course um, I have increased appetite, yeah. you know, and so forth. So all of that plays a part on. Now, Felicia, do you have computer access? I do. Okay, I would suggest and that you contact by by the internet uh, birthing hands you know we've had Claudia Booker on and she would be a very good person for you to be in touch with um, she works with with expectant moms and with new moms and she would be able I believe to help you okay well thank you for your call and please birthinghands.com okay thank you sorry we can't help you more we're gonna take another call we have clay Hello? Oh, I guess he's gone. All right. Hey, Clay, are you there? Hello. Yes, hi. Yeah, I'm just going to comment on uh, what you were saying, that now doctors are looking for right brain thinkers mm -hmm. and artists becoming more analytical. I'm, I'm very, I have to say, a little skeptical, skeptical about the danger of oversimplification of just labeling people left brain thinkers versus right brain thinkers. I'm a math teacher and a cartoonist. And, you know, I don't have to have a split personality or something to do either one. I think most people have varying combinations of both. And it becomes a little like, you know, kind of like uh, reducing people to some kind of like an ant farm by determining what you think their brains operate. Some of the workers and some of the queens and the drones. I, I, I really don't think it's that simple, even though the language of left, right brain thinking has become very popular and concise. I think in the danger is too much oversimplification. And you're going to get into some kind of not physical trouble, but, you know, it, it's going to run its course and be a kind of a pop psychology without some real research to back it up with. Well, I'd, I'd suggest that you take a good look at Whole New Mind because the research there is extensive. But I'm going to turn to our guest, Dan. Sure, I think, it's a, I, think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting question here. Um, you know, I said earlier that these right-brain abilities, these metaphorically right-brain abilities, and that's obviously the key thing here, is that, as I mentioned several times, the, these, these, uh, the structure of our brain offers a very powerful metaphor for understanding what's going on in the economy. Um, the truth is that, that all of us use both sides of our brain for nearly every Every task that we do, uh, and there's also a reason a book is called the book is called a whole new mind, not you know let's get jiggy on the right side of the brain. Um, what um, what's essential here is that these abilities, both left and right, are fundamentally human abilities. I think what's happened the abilities, as you say correctly, that all of us have. Um, I think what's happened is that in the world of work the so-called right brain abilities haven't been that valued. And therefore, in a lot of people, they haven't been called out of hiding. Uh, so they're, they're, they're like muscles that have atrophied, and we need to work them back into shape. Now, you're obviously working both sides of your brain well in sort of this perfect super combo platter of mathematics and cartooning. That's outstanding. I mean, that's sort of, in some ways, the approach to the life and work that I think is really the ideal one, that you have the left brain abilities and you have the right brain abilities. What's, what's
what concerns me is that we are um, n- not considering these right brain abilities, which are becoming economically urgent, as things that are serious, when in fact they're extra- extraordinarily serious. And there's some people who are daunted by the fact that they say, oh, I can't draw. Oh, I'm not a right brain person, which I think is fundamentally wrong. Their abilities, these abilities that we're talking about are part of what defines us as human beings. They're abilities that all of us have, but we need simply to work them back into shape. And the same thing is true, I mean, if you think about left brain abilities, all right, we would we would never say to anybody that, with very, very rare exceptions, that you cannot become literate. You cannot become numerate. You can't learn how to read. That's too sophisticated for you. You can't learn how to do math. That's too sophisticated for you. Uh, it's the same thing is true with these right brain abilities. The fact that everybody can become literate doesn't mean everybody's going to become Toni Morrison. And the fact that everybody become numerate doesn't mean everyone's going to become a math teacher. But what it does mean is that everybody can become literate and numerate. And I think that we can, everybody can develop a certain kind of literacy in these, in these right brain abilities. And I think they're going to have to. That's great. Thank you, Clay, for your call. Uh, we're speaking with Dan Pink here at WPFW, our show on parenting, and our phone number here is 202-588-0893. Now, Dan, you mentioned those six abilities, and um, I just want to stop a bit, and the one with design, uh, I know when I read your book, it got my attention because it immediately made me think of the Sundance catalog. Because I look at that catalog, and it is just so beautiful. Yeah. And they tell these little stories about the things they sell, and then there they charge go. twice as much. Yeah. And I thought, he's absolutely right. This is yeah. the future of the American economy. Well, I mean, if Sundance Catalog is the future of the American economy, then I need to leave this program quickly and short <laughs> some stock. But um, um, the, well, I think it's a really good point. And I think that really goes more to story than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that's actually um, the... The, the story behind an offering in the marketplace is becoming a very, very important differentiator. Um, this, is, this is in some reason why people want, are willing to pay a premium for organic material, for organic food or organic clothing, because what they're buying is the story, the story of, let's take organic cotton jeans. Most of us lack the tactile prowess to figure out whether jeans are made by conventional cotton or by um, organic cotton. If I brought in two pairs of jeans, one organic, one conventional, my guess is that you, and I said, Jack, which is which, mm-hmm. you, wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to tell. And yet people will, buy, will pay a significant premium for the organic cotton jeans. What are they buying there? To my mind, they're buying the story. They're buying the supply chain. They're buying the narrative of how that cotton got from the ground to their butt, basically. And, um, and I think that, that that story has become a, an important differentiator in, in offerings in the marketplace, especially when people become much more concerned about the integrity of the product or, or service. This is what, I mean, locally grown, differentiating based on something being locally grown is in some ways differentiating based on the story, based on the supply chain, where it came from, how it got here. And I think, it's, I think that story is a differentiator. You see it a, a lot in food and beverage now. You see it a lot in... Um, uh, in, in fashion, story as a differentiator is becoming a big deal, led by the Sundance catalog. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go to the phones. We have a caller. Justine, are you there? Yes, hi. Hi. So this is really interesting. I have to let that one you just talked about sit for a minute. <laughs> but um, uh, I was just thinking the other day, like, I, you know, I really understand about recreating sort of the paradigm of how we look at how we interact as community in the world and... Um, how we value people's work and um, and how we basically justify uh, using resources, meaning work, to 
to justify our right to survive, basically. And it seems like since the Earth has the potential to um, really sustain the population that we have, and if we did distribute um, the resources more equitably, then we wouldn't have a lot of the population and disease problems that we have. To me, it seems like we have to check out the whole paradigm of work um, to justify use of resources and that we do have the resources and that maybe it's a bit Calvinistic to, to um, only make work the qualitative thing or working 40 to 100 hours a week to justify um, your right to the resources of the earth. So um, anyway, I just thought I'd throw that into the mix. Yeah, I think it's an interesting. Um, I think it's an interesting set of ideas to throw into the mix, and I actually think it goes to to some of the points um, in the book, A Whole New Mind. If you think about, uh, I mentioned this world of abundance that we're living in. Well, abundance has had certain kinds of externalities, certain kinds of ramifications. Mm-hmm. For instance, climate change, uh, and I think that a lot of the biggest problems in our world are in many ways design problems and we want mm-hmm. design thinkers to solve those problems mm-hmm. dependence on foreign oil is a design problem mm-hmm. i think our healthcare system is a design problem um, uh, moving to more uh, moving uh, climate change itself is a, is a design problem in our transportation systems and our housing systems mm-hmm. and whatnot and so i think what we want is we want design thinkers to be able to solve those problems the other thing that i think is an interesting point that that you're making justine is that um is is the no, whole notion of work, and what you see now is more and more people thinking of work as a source of meaning and purpose, not only as a way to, um, not only as a way to earn a living. Um, and I think more and more people are my, not everybody, but more and more people are migrating to to, to work environments and, and jobs that give them a sense of significance, a sense of purpose, uh, a, a, a sense of, a sense of meaning. Um, and I think that's a incredibly healthy. I think that's an incredibly healthy trend. Mm-hmm. Well, we actually, I mean, in a way, we are we can afford to do that. We can afford to make those choices. And um, what I mean, I agree. I love what you're saying about. You know, thinking of all these problems in terms of design and kind of looking at the way we see things and say, oh, maybe there's another way of looking at this. But um, a huge part of that is um, addressing poverty issues and, you know, the history of it and how to kind of bring people in. Yeah. And um, and that's uh, got to be a huge well, part, I would argue not just I would, our choices, yeah. but how to include give other people choices I, I agree with that and I, I think that I think that poverty itself is in many ways a design problem and to my right. mind just po- as a as a political as a political point and you know I, I'm, I'm writing a business book as a political point uh, I think that that if you look at the level of abundance that has reached the huge majority a huge majority of people in this country the, I mean it is undeniable that the, that the material standards of living in this country deep into the middle class are breathtaking and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, we have 12, 13 percent of our population living in poverty. I mean, I think that's, I mean, again, not, I, this is not a political book, but I think that happens to be a, a moral disgrace, and it's one that we need a, a powerful design solution fueled by an enormous amount of political will. If you look at, 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 at poverty and sort of near poverty and other things in the, in the rest of the world, um, if you look at a place like India or even a place like China or a place like Indonesia or Vietnam or Malaysia, you have literally in the last decade and in the last and in the, and I hope in the next decade tens of millions of people 
uh, moving from poverty or near poverty into a middle class standard of living. That makes our world a better place. It has some ramifications, particularly on the environment, but that makes our world um, uh, that, that makes our world a better place. Thank you, Justine. We're going to take a break now, but we're going to come back and be speaking with Dan Pink here at WPFW. Our show is on parenting, and I hope that you'll stay tuned. In this historical year, you're invited to another milestone, the 25th anniversary Marketplace Festival and Health Fair at the Reeves Center, 14th and U Streets Northwest, D.C., on Saturday, December the 20th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Shop for affordable gifts on two floors with 70 unique merchants, artists, health providers, and youth entrepreneurs. Get free health screening and relax with fitness workouts. Enjoy culture, food, entertainment, a silent auction, and WPFW personalities. The Marketplace Festival and Health Fair is open to the public, but receive a door prize with donations for youth, crime, and violence prevention and bring donations of usable laptops or computers. For 25 years, the oldest East Coast celebration of Christmas and Kwanzaa has urged you to spend your money where it counts in your own community for the most positive holidays ever. So be there Saturday, December the 20th at the Reeves Center. Contact 202-667-2577 or view AfricanAmericanHolidays.org. WPFW is a media sponsor for this event. Peace. Well, welcome back. It's Jack Petrash on On Parenting, and our guest tonight is Dan Pink, uh, author of A Whole New Mind, um, author of The Free Agent Nation, author of The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, um, best-selling writer. And um, Dan, you had mentioned these six abilities, and we had talked about design, and then we were on to talk about and, and to storytelling. And I know in your book, um, you talk about the value of storytelling. And I was surprised to find that companies like 3M use storytelling in their business plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, there's a very interesting story in the Xerox company and how they use storytelling among their repair people. Um, could you say a little bit about what you found out about this ability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about stories is that this is how human beings communicate. Storytelling is one of the aspects that makes us human. Uh, We see the world not only as a series of logical propositions, although a left-brain person like me sees it as a series of logical propositions, but we see it as a series of episodes. And so if you just think about how people behave, if you come home from a hard day at work and your spouse or your partner says to you, how was your day? You don't whip out a PowerPoint presentations with pie graphs and all that sort of stuff. You say, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. First this happened, then that happened, then that You narrate. And for a whole set of reasons that I think has to do with this kind of hyper-muscle left-brain approach to business, story has really been, until recently, been banished from business. And, and by banishing story, you're banishing an element of humanity, coupled with the fact that storytelling is very effective in business. Um, think about healthcare, uh, which again we, we sometimes overlook the fact that healthcare is one seventh of our economy. Um, medical schools now are teaching what's called narrative medicine uh, because 
understanding a patient's story is becoming essential to being diagnosing a patient properly. Typically what happens in a, a, a typical doctor-patient encounter is that the doctor comes in and asks a question, and the patient starts telling a story. And then within 15 or 20 seconds, the doctor interrupts. That's it, yeah. um, get to the point, you know, trying to get to the point. Well, uh, there's a movement in medical schools to go away from that. and. And it works. I'll give you one quick example of this. There's a great study done in a New York City teaching hospital that, that where the young physicians kept what are called parallel charts. So they had a bunch of, they had their patients. One group kept the regular kind of charts, you know, where you write down the vital statistics and all that sort of stuff, the kind of clipboard you see at the end of the bed in ER. Um, you, one group of physicians kept that chart. The other group kept what are called parallel charts, where they did that. Obviously, you have to do that to be a good physician. But then they kept another chart running next to it. And that was a chart that, that where they described getting to know the patient, understanding where the patient was from, what the patient's life was about. They basically wrote a little narrative about the patient and his or her life. Well, lo and behold, doctors who kept the parallel charts, their patients got better faster, and their drug costs were lower. Because what happens is the doctors were better diagnosticians. They were using their left brain. You have to have a good analytic left brain to be a physician. But if you have only that, you're going to miss stuff. And so it's the doctors who can toggle between left and right who are really the ones who are effective. And so you now have – and we think of medical school as, as this kind of bastion of left brain muscle flexing when, in fact, they're training doctors to listen to patient stories. That's a wonderful, wonderful innovation to come to medical Medical yeah, well, schools. medical schools are, are actually hotbeds of, of right-brain thinking, which, is, which always surprises people. And actually, you know, uh, if, if you look at um, – I'll give you another great example from, from medical school in, in terms of uh, symphonic thinking or big-picture thinking mm-hmm. or bringing the arts into a left-brain realm. Uh, Mount Sinai Medical College, along with Harvard Medical School, Yale Medical School, a whole array of medical schools, are taking young physicians to art museums to make them better diagnosticians. Now, that seems completely kind of woo-woo, the idea, ooh, we're going to go to an art museum. What a fun little field trip for these hardworking medical students, when in fact it's now part of their diagnostic training. And it's the same kind of principle behind the narrative medicine. Um, If you want to be a good physician, certain kinds of diagnosis is routine. Okay, it's decision trees. Yes, no questions at bracket to yes, no questions. And so students who are who are good at that are going to be fervently good diagnosticians. And you can even have software backstop you on that kind of stuff. But the other diagnoses that are difficult, the diagnoses that are difficult, are, are difficult precisely because they elude that kind of routinization. Um, the other thing is that there's so much medical information out there that an individual physician can't be this kind of vending machine for right answers. She has to be able to ask the right questions. And that calls for extraordinary observation skills, the observation skills of a painter, yep. the observation skills of a sculptor. So now they, they're taking students, medical students to art museums. And again, the great thing about medical schools is because they are fundamentally left-brain institutions is that they measure everything. And here we go again. One group has conventional diagnostic training. One group of medical students has the art-based diagnostic training. Lo and behold, the doctors who had the art-based medical diagnostic training are better diagnosticians. Again, for the same reason, they can toggle. They can look at a patient algorithmically. You have to be able to do that. But they can toggle over to the other side and look at a patient aesthetically and look at it, the totality of that, of that patient. And so, um, you know, and again, we, think, we tend to think of it, what's, what's interesting is there's this slight disconnect between professional schools, like medical schools, uh, and elementary and secondary education, where medical schools are bringing in art education 
elementary and secondary schools, it's the first thing yeah. on the chopping block. Yeah. And for years, these right brain activities you mentioned were considered frivolous. Sure. Yeah. Non-serious, yeah. light, yeah. foo-foo, um, nice as kind of ornaments, but not anything that, it, that serious people did, when in fact it's, it's fundamentally wrong. I mean, let's take another one of the abilities. I mean, again, I don't want to deify medical schools here, but let's take, let's take, um, let's go to a question. Okay. <laughs> We've got a phone call from Omar. Yes. Uh, good evening. How good are evening, you Omar. Yes, this is a, a very good conversation. I've got a, a comment and, and then a question. Sure. Well, I'll ask the question first, but then I'll comment and listen. Uh, I wanted to know uh, what, which sides, uh, uh, which side of the brain, or the skills associated with which side of the brain are most affected by the the impacts of poverty. You know, this hmm. body of literature that now speaks to how poverty through neuroendocrine axes, and by the way, I'm a physician and a biological anthropologist, so let me uh, <clears throat> put that out there. I'm interested in how uh, poverty affects cognition and, uh, and its impact, and, and, and we now have a situation where we can talk about epigenetics and we can talk about fetal programming, and we can talk about how poverty actually directs, uh, directly affects, uh, based on hard research, uh, for example, language acquisition. We can break cognition down. But I wanted to know, in the sort of gross scenario, uh, uh, which side of these skills are most affected by uh, an impaired environment? Now, is it right brain skills or is it left brain skills? And I think this has uh, a deep implication for various communities in various situations. That's my question. And my comment is, is that you know, I think that uh, it's very interesting to hear that some medical schools are self-consciously integrating art. But I went to a medical school where the issue wasn't art, but the issue was being sensitive to people who uh, weren't the people in the medical textbooks. So the notion of getting a good history, the notion of going into the person's background, and, uh, you know, I graduated from medical school 28 years ago, that the idea of understanding the person where they were and, and, and understanding that you might have to get a different vocabulary to understand people uh, is not a foreign or an alien idea to people that went to schools like Howard or Meharry. Mm -hmm. Because we know what happened when many Afro-American patients, for example, especially working poor, working class, would go to other places, uh, they would be dismissed. And, uh, and we were told that it was our charge to make sure that we understood, uh, for a variety of different reasons, the stories, as you say, of these folk who were, for the most part, our folk in a particular way. And even the white students that went to Howard and Meharry most certainly learned something about uh, talking to people who didn't come from the same class background and understanding that they may speak differently, and you may need to hear that story that you're talking about. So it's great to hear people self-consciously bringing in things like art, which is really getting into looking at the whole dimension of a person's mm. life, because that's what a real medical history is. Yeah, let me let me address Omar the, uh, the the comment first. I think that you're exactly right, and I think that in many ways, a lot of these things that we're talking about have been fundamental to any kind of good medical practice. Any good physician did these things, and I think that some of the medical schools that you're describing might have been, you know, were ahead of their time on this. Think about something like 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 empathy, which is this fundamental human ability, sort of seeing the world not from your own perspective but from the other's perspective. Um, there is now clinical empathy being taught in every 
medical school essentially in North America because it's proven to be uh, efficacious. And there's even a measurement called the JSPE, the Jefferson Scale of Physician Empathy, that allows us to measure physician empathy and actually chart its uh, hopeful rise. Even something like, um, uh, if you think about something like even spirituality, it's it's pretty clear that people who believe in something larger than themselves, whether it's a, a classic religion, organized religion, or something else, um, they actually get better faster. And so now it's somewhat controversial in, in medicine is this idea that you're saying of taking of looking at the whole person. 25, 30 years ago, I mean, there was, or maybe 40 years ago, where there's some skittishness about taking a patient's sexual history. And now it's it's, it's bad medicine if you don't under certain circumstances. Well, now you have uh, some physicians arguing taking a, a patient's spiritual history to understand what their relation is with faith and with um, uh, higher powers because it's important in doing in, in doing effective medicine. So I think that you're right. I think that 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 a lot of these trends are really restoring the kind of humanity to medicine that in a, in a hyper-analytic world uh, ended up falling off the table. As to your first point, um, I don't know the answer to that about which side, which sorts of skills are most impaired during poverty. I do remember last week or the week before a study coming out showing actual changes in the brain, I mean, physiological changes in the brain among kids who live in poverty. And I think, unfortunately, my, my hunch, and I'm not a physician, but my hunch on this is that it's probably impairment on... Uh, on, on both sets of on both sets of abilities, certainly something like uh, literacy and numeracy on the left side of the brain. If you're not exposed to words and picture and and, um, and books and uh, talking with adults all the time, I think you're going to have a slower development there. Um, on the on the right side, I mean, maybe you end up doing a little bit better there as a kind of survival skill and coping skill. For instance, the ability that I call symphony, which is big picture thinking, being able to put the pieces together. I think in order to navigate a world that's far more treacherous for some of these kids and for other kids, you have to be a pretty good uh, uh, big picture thinker. You have to be able to figure things out in a holistic way as a, as a survival skill. But I think the broader point that you're making is, and, and I think this is, a, is it's again, sort of, uh, similar to uh, Justine's question, which is, is the urgency that, I mean, you, you, the urgency that, that kids are starting from different places. And you mentioned even in the womb, kids are starting physiologically from different places places. And that creates, I think, a level of injustice that we're not talking about. Omar, I want to thank you for your call. Um, Dan, I think that the questions that have come from our callers have just led to such interesting discussions. We, uh, it makes me think of the, uh, the school systems in, in impoverished areas and how those schools, they just have different programs. For instance, the reading programs that they put in the um, schools in the poor areas to boost the reading scores are much less imaginative. They're more scripted programs. They lack the, the more creative responses. And the right brain activities are often um, just ignored, especially in uh, the era of no child left behind, and I, I think it was a disservice to to the. Um, There's a tiny. There there are some glimmers of hope out there. I mean, I, I think that the the broader issue that some kids start life in this country 
so fundamentally disadvantaged is an issue that goes way beyond left brain or right brain mm -hmm. into what I think at the heart of political leadership in this country. But there are some really interesting things going on. And one of the, one of the things in the world of education is, is, and I write about a school, for instance, in Philadelphia called CHAD, the Charter High School for Architecture yes. and Design. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a school, a charter school, that serves uh, low-income kids who, and these kids are leaving schools that are disgraceful, that they even exist in, in this country. They come in, and the entire curriculum is done, is, is taught through architecture and design. They have a 90-minute drawing class almost every day. And what happens is, is that a lot of these right-brain things, building stuff, uh, using the arts, is a way to simply engage some of these kids in learning. And as a result, they end up boosting their capabilities both in the left brain literacy and numeracy skills, which are essential, and also in the right brain abilities. And, and we, we can't think of this too much as either or. Mm -hmm. we can, these, things can re these things can reinforce each other in a very powerful way. So there are some examples out there of reaching harder to reach kids by through an education program that's a little bit more right brain. Yeah, that Chad School is just inspiring. Now, Dan, I wouldn't want our program to to come to a our interview to come to an end and at times passing too quickly without a chance for you to speak about your new book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. I know it's a different topic, but I think it's one that'll interest parents of older kids. Uh, well, I hope so, and it also makes a great stocking stuffer. Uh, it's um, it's a book called uh, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and the subtitle is The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. And this is kind of an intriguing book, as you know, because it's uh, it's a 160-page graphic novel. It's a 160-page paperback comic that tells the story of a guy named Johnny Bunko, who is an everyman who works at a place called the Boggs Corporation. He hates his job. One night, he has a dark night of the soul. He's working all night. He goes to get some Japanese food. Um, and he comes back to his desk to eat his food, to pull his all-nighter. He snaps open some chopsticks, and lo and behold, out of the blast that ensues is a character named Diana, uh, who is um, the uh, unlikeliest career advisor you've ever seen. She's sort of one part Cameron Diaz, one part I Dream of Genie, who proceeds to teach Johnny the six key lessons of any satisfying productive career, the six lessons that no one ever bothered to tell us about how the world of work really works. Um, it's a fun book. You can read it in, you can read it in less than an hour. Um, and what it's done, and what's been really gratifying, are two things. One, parents picking up the book, giving to their kids, and having great conversations. I get those emails all the time. And actually, going to one of your early questions, Jack, it's actually been a useful way to engage some uh, harder to reach kids. So uh, there are some programs in Washington State now, dropout, some state dropout prevention programs that um, are using this book in their dropout prevention programs because it's an accessible way for kids, for, for these young folks to read, to re-engage, to have some optimism about their work uh, and their life. Well, it just bears mentioning again, the title is The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and the subtitle is The Last Career Guide You'll the last career guide you'll ever need, ever need, which limited my sequel possibilities, but that's all right. <laughs> well, I guess that's how it'll have to be. Um, our time is coming to an end. Dan, I have to say, it's just been a pleasure to have you on the show. And um, we only got to a few of the abilities. We covered empathy. We, we touched on empathy. We spoke about big picture thinking. We didn't mention play. Um, we didn't mention meaning. Um, but they're interesting abilities that you describe so well in your book, A Whole New Mind, and it's just been great 
to have this time to talk together. It's been my pleasure being on your program, Jack. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. Now we're going to um, to shift here as we as we do so often, and and just to reflect a minute on the the kind of questions that um, really come for parents, because if we take seriously the thoughts that that Dan Pink. Um, shared with us tonight, that our children are going to need different abilities for the future. The question is, what are, what are we going to do as parents to help them? And I think as we go toward this holiday season, we think of the gifts we give our kids. One of the gifts that I would I think really comes in here is the gift of the ability to play music. Uh, I know I read a study, of, a brain study on uh, what occurs in a child's brain when they play a musical instrument and they just say that the whole brain lights up uh, because you've got this uh, ability to read the abstract symbols of the music which activates one side of the brain and then you have the the affective experience of playing music which uh, activates the other side of the brain and and I know researchers say that whenever electrical impulses move from one hemisphere of the brain to the other of course across this corpus callosum it's a sign of higher order thinking and for children today to be playing music is just a wonderful gift it's I think the best gift a parent can give a child and it's a gift that lasts a lifetime so just some thoughts on how we at home with our children can help develop both sides of their brain and uh, Bobby McFerrin is always a reminder to us that it's story time, so please gather your children around. Our story tonight told by Kalanje Lushagun is a story of Anansi and the hat-shaking dance. Anansi's hat-shaking dance, an African Ashanti tribe story. If you look closely, you will see that Kwaku Anasi, the spider, has a bald head. It is said in the old days he had hair, but that he lost it through vanity. It happened that Anasi's mother-in-law died. When word came to Anasi's home, Aso, his wife, prepared to go at once to her own village for the funeral. But Anasi said to Aso, You go ahead, I will follow. When Aso had gone, Anasi said to himself, When I go to my dead mother-in-law's house, I will have to show great grief over her death. I will have to refuse to eat. Therefore, I shall eat now. And so he sat in his own house and ate a huge meal. Then he put on his mourning clothes and went to Aso's village. First there was the funeral. Afterward there was a large feast. But Anansi refused to eat out of respect for his wife's dead mother. He said, What kind of man would I be to eat when I am in mourning for my mother-in-law? 
I will eat only after the eighth day has passed. Now, this was not expected of him, because a man isn't required to starve himself simply because someone has died. But Anansi was the kind of person that when he ate, he ate twice as much as others. And when he danced, he danced more vigorously than others. And when he mourned, he had to mourn more loudly than anybody else. Whatever he did, he didn't want to be outdone by anyone else. And although he was very hungry, he couldn't bear to have people think he wasn't the greatest mourner at his own mother-in-law's funeral. So he said, Feed my friends, but as for me, I shall do without. So everyone ate. The porcupine, the rabbit, the snake, the guinea fowl, and the others, all except Anansi. On the second day after the funeral, they said to him again, Eat, there is no need to starve. But Anansi replied, Oh, no, not until the eighth day, when the morning is over. What kind of man do you think I am? So the others ate. Anansi's stomach was empty, and he was unhappy. On the third day, they said again, Eat, Kwaku Anansi. There is no need to go hungry. But Anansi was stubborn. He said, How can I eat when my wife's mother has been buried only three days? And so the others ate, while Anansi smelled the food hungrily and suffered. On the fourth day, Anansi was alone, where a pot of beans was cooking over the fire. He smelled the beans and looked into the pot. At last he couldn't stand it any longer. He took a large spoon and dipped up a large portion of the beans, thinking to take it to a quiet place and eat it without anyone's knowing. But just then the dog, the guinea fowl, the rabbit, and the others returned to the place where the food was cooking. To hide the beans, Anasya quickly poured them into his hat and put it on his head. The other people came to the pot and ate, saying again, Anansi, you must eat. He said, No, what kind of man would I be? But the hot beans were burning his head. He jiggled his hat around with his hands. Then he saw the others looking at him. He said, Just at this very moment in my village, the hat-shaking festival is taking place. I shake my hat in honor of the occasion. The beans felt hotter than ever, and he jiggled his hat some more. He began to jump with pain, and he said, like this in my village, they are doing the hat-shaking dance. He danced about, jiggling his hat because of the heat. He yearned to take off his hat, but he could not because his friends would see the beans. So he shouted, They are shaking and jiggling the hats in my village, like this. It is a great festival. I must go. They said to him, Kweku Anansi, eat something before you go. But now Anansi was jumping and writhing with the heat of the beans on his head. He shouted, Oh no, they are shaking hats. They are wriggling hats and jumping like this. I must go to my village. They need me. He rushed out of the house, jumping and pushing his hat back and forth. His friends followed after him, saying, Eat before you go on your journey. But Anansi shouted, What kind of man do you think I am with my mother-in-law just buried? Even though they had followed right after him, he couldn't wait any longer because the pain was too much, and he tore the hat from his head. When the dog saw, and the guinea fowl saw, and the rabbit saw, and all the others saw what was in the hat, and saw the hot beans sticking to Anansi's head, they stopped chasing him. They began to laugh and jeer. Anansi was overcome with shame. He leaped into the tall grass, saying, Hide me, and the grass hid him. 
That is why Anansi is often found in the tall grass, where he was driven by shame. And you will see that his head is bald, for the hot beans he put in his hat burned off his hair. All this happened because he tried to impress people at his mother-in-law's funeral. Well, thank you, Kalanji Elushagun, for a wonderful story, Anansi, the spider, and the hat-shaking dance. Well, we've come to the end of our program on parenting for the month of December, and I want to thank our guest, Dan Pink, who was here with us this evening to speak about his book, A Whole New Mind. And I want to thank our callers who gave us such interesting questions to respond to and such interesting thoughts. I want to thank our engineer, T, for doing a fine job. I want to thank our listeners. And I want to speak to my second graders at the Waldorf School and say, children, it's time for bed, and may the stars watch over you. Your children are not your children. They are the 